want to share from the Bible, from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. And last time I spoke, I spoke um, again from Luke, but we, looked, we were looking about rediscovering normal Christianity. And we discovered that to live as a normal Christian is to be one who's sent out on mission. And today I want to look at the next story, or kind of a couple of stories on, from Luke 9. And uh, it's an interesting passage. It's one that you'll... Actually, no, sorry, it is the next story. It's Luke chapter 9, verses 10 onwards. Um, it's the next story after the one that we had before from about Jesus sending the 12. And then, and then we're starting with the 12 disciples coming back to Jesus and reporting to him. And then we're going to hear about the feeding of the 5,000. This is a familiar passage to some, um, but hopefully God will speak and we'll see some stuff in there that will encourage us today. So I'm going to pray really simply, and then we're going to open the Bible together. If you haven't got a Bible, the word should be on the screen for you. Uh, behind me. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that when we read it and when we hear it, and particularly when we put it into practice, you are at work in our lives. And we pray today that this would be a moment when we sense your presence. We sense you speaking to us and encouraging, and if necessary, challenging. But we open ourselves up to your word. Do what you want amongst us. Amen. So Luke chapter 9 starts with, well, Luke verse 10 starts with this. When the apostles returned, and they've just gone out on mission, 12 of them sent out to go and preach the good news of Jesus and to heal the sick, and they've come back to Jesus. And this is what it says. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they'd done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. Apologies if you're looking at this screen. Um, I think it's had a football injury, uh, maybe just the other day, so uh, the projector, not the screen. So uh, that's why it's... You feel like you're going downhill on this side. So um, I'm going to read from this one. Then they answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. Then he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups, about 50 each. So the disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Well, many of you will have heard this story before, I'm sure. But this is a really practical uh, and challenging story in some ways. And I just want, I think it does relate to our lives in a couple of key instances. Disciples go away on mission. They come back to Jesus. They tell him what they've done. And he takes them away to a small town or just probably outside Bethsaida. It's quite possible that they're in the surrounding countryside, just around the town, and uh, they're there. And as often happens, a crowd forms around Jesus. Jesus seems to spend much of the Gospels uh, speaking to crowds and then withdrawing from crowds, uh, and then the crowds tend to find him again. It seems to be a, a kind of prevailing pattern through the whole of the Gospel story. And here we find him again, uh, surrounded by another crowd. And Jesus is teaching. And as he teaches, the time goes on, and people listen to the stories, 
and he's teaching and talking and he's healing the sick and, and, and he's preaching and healing, interestingly, in just the same way that the disciples have done. It's interesting, isn't it? He sent them out to go and preach and heal and they come back and tell him what they've done and then Jesus does exactly the same again, preaching and healing. And we see just, uh, it's not my sermon, but just in this example, we see again Jesus reinforcing the principle that preaching, proclamation and demonstration are the gospel message. That it's not just words, but it's not just doing. It's this mixture of words and doing that come together and we have proclamation and demonstration that make up the good news. Where Jesus comes to tell us about the kingdom of God, but then show us what that means in real life. And that's our challenge and our encouragement to go and share that message with others. But what's the problem? Well, the problem is quite a practical one. You see, Jesus is preaching and as Jesus is healing, um, the disciples are kind of realizing that time's dragging on a bit. It's, It's marching on, sorry, not dragging on, it's marching on. And as Jesus is going about his business, they're, they're watching the sun. I was going to go like this and watch my, cl- my, my wrist for a watch, but they, I haven't got one and neither did they. They'd be watching the sun going down and maybe one or two of them who've seen this before, their tummies are beginning to rumble. And they're, they're, they're planning ahead and thinking, there's quite a crowd here. There's quite a crowd and uh, there's a lot of people. And, and well, they're going to need to eat at some point soon. We can't go on like this forever. We're outside of the town, so we need to do something about this. And the disciples are practical guys. You've got fishermen and tax collectors, a whole group of people who've been in business in different ways. Uh, they're used to solving problems, and here they are, and they've got a problem. And so they come up with a practical solution. You know, people who can see problems, sometimes that's a, a really helpful skill. Sometimes it's not a very encouraging one, uh, but sometimes it's a helpful skill. But to be honest, most of us can see the problems. It's finding the solution that we need, isn't it? And people who can find solutions are rarer than people who can find problems. Have you noticed that? Yeah? Yeah, there's more people around who can tell you what the problem is and less people who can tell you how to fix it. You know, I've read this in the past and thought, oh, the disciples, just, they just haven't got faith, have they? I've read it before and think, oh, they're just looking at this with human perspective and they haven't got faith. But then it occurred to me to read back through the Gospels and I realized that they've probably been in this situation before. Because there's been crowds around them before and Jesus has taught before. And I think it's quite likely that the disciples are saying, well, we've, we've been in this situation before. What we did last time was we sent everyone home and they went off and got food and, and then we, we went off. And that's probably what we should do this time. Because it seems like the logical thing to do, and it seems like the practical thing to do, so, so Jesus will send them away. There's, there's a lot of people. Send them away so they can get food and lodging, because they're going to need to stay overnight, and we're in a remote place here, outside the town. But you know, as we read this story, we discover what we discover in life, which is that sometimes God doesn't do the same thing twice. And we see that just because God has fixed a situation in your life in the past in one particular way, he may not want to do it next time in the same way. And sometimes we can get to a place where we, we, kinda, we treat God as if we, we understand him and we've contained him and we know how he works. We've, we've got the formula, we've read the book, we've watched the DVDs, we've been on the training course and we know exactly what God's going to do because we heard it from somebody who told us that this is what God's going to do. All because, more personally, God did it for us that way in the past. 
And what happens sometimes is we come up against a new situation, a new set of circumstances, uh, and we pray the same way, we expect the same thing that God did last time, and sometimes it doesn't happen. And at that moment, we can feel bereft. We can think God's left us. We can think that, well, it works for the guy on the stage, it works for the, the woman who wrote the book, or it works for them, or it works for, but it, it hasn't worked for me. God, why have you let me down? What, what is it about me? And we can begin to think that there's something personal about us that's somehow at fault. Because what someone told us or what we've seen in the past this time isn't working. And sometimes, well, always it's worth asking ourselves. It's worth just checking in and saying, God, am I okay? Am I doing all right? Is there something I need to pay attention to? But equally often, uh, God is taking us into a new place of understanding with him. He's deepening our relationship with him. He's, he's trying to broaden our perspective and say, just because you prayed in this way last time and I did that, this time I want you to grow and to, I want to stretch you. I want you to trust in a new way. And here what we see is the disciples are needing to trust in a new way. We see a few things from this passage. The problem, firstly, the problem is very simple. We've got overwhelming need and insufficient resources. There are lots of people. The Bible says there are 5,000 men there. Now, I've heard some people say that, well, if there's 5,000 men, there probably were 5,000 women and probably some children, lots of children as well. So you probably got sort of 12 or 13,000 people there. It's a huge crowd. I was thinking about that and I thought, well, maybe or maybe not. It says there's 5,000 men and the problem is they've got no food. See, I reckon, uh, don't stone me, but I reckon if there were a few women around, somebody would have thought to bring something Somebody would have had a practical thought in the head to go, do you know what, we might be here a while? Because I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been the fellas. Now, I know it's kind of pointing a finger at men, but we can be like that, can't we? And I think somebody would have packed up a bag of something to say you might be, might be worth taking this with you. We've got at least 5,000 people here. And, and they scout around and they find five loaves and two fish. Ordinary food. This isn't rich fare. This is not some luxury provision. It's not Fortnum and Mason's finest. This is just bog-standard lunch. Five little loaves and two fish. You know, there are some times when we look at situations in our own lives and it seems as though we've got overwhelming need and insufficient resources. It might be a financial issue or a health issue. It might be a relational issue or an emotional one. And you're facing a problem and your immediate thought is to look within, to say, what resources do I have to meet this need? And as you look at your resources, it doesn't seem to match the problem, the overwhelming need. And at that point, we go, oh dear, I'm stuck. That's exactly the kind of thing that God specializes in. Secondly, we see this, the place of your is the right place for your miracle. The disciples didn't need to send the people away. Right where they were, with what they had, was exactly the right place for God to turn up and do something special. Thirdly, we see this. Impossible problems are no harder for God than possible ones. God isn't only interested in doing small things. He wants to do big things too. And actually, I don't think there's such a thing as an impossible problem for God. You can create a philosophically logical impossible situation, like can God create a stone that's so heavy that he can't lift it? 
well, that's an ancient philosophical conundrum, but actually it's meaningless. And therefore it doesn't exist, therefore it doesn't matter if nobody can do it. It's a meaningless proposition, philosophically. So that doesn't matter, but actually problems that we think are impossible, I don't think there are any for God. I don't think there's anything that's impossible for God. We look at them and say, well, remember somebody preaching here once and, and explaining that with, if you need a million pounds, it can seem impossible. If you need a pound, it seems possible. But for God to provide a pound is no different from him providing a million pounds. Does that make sense? It's both the same. We also see in this passage that God's approach to a crisis is different to ours. You know, I love reading the gospel stories. I love it because Jesus takes my breath away again and again, and you, and you see Jesus in situations where, you know, he's, he's asked, uh, classic ones, he's asked about tax. Should we pay tax to Caesar or not? And it's a religious person asking him the question. And it's a trick question. Because if he says, yes, you should pay tax to Caesar, then he's not a true Jew. He's not living for the kingdom of God. He's living for the kingdom of the world, and he's compromised. If he says no, then he's a revolutionary. He's a political uh, activist, and he's in danger of uh, under the Romans. So he can't win. It's a perfect question. And so Jesus says, bring me a coin. doesn't have one, but bring me a coin. Whose head is on it? It's not Elizabeth's, but it's Caesar's. It's Caesar's, they say. So if, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's incredible solution to a seemingly impossible problem just on a conceptual level, but it's no different to the situations that we face day by day. Jesus' creativity takes my breath away. I love the beauty of creation. I'm not someone who knows a lot about nature around me. I just enjoy it. I'm quite happy going for a walk not knowing the names of the birds that I can hear singing and just enjoying the birds singing. I'm quite happy walking along through the, the woodland or through a field and not knowing what the names of the flowers are or the trees are. Perhaps my knowledge would, be, would help me appreciate it even more. I'm just quite happy worshipping God as I walk along and delighting in the beauty of creation. My brain's only little. I can't retain that kind of information of all those names and things. That Something else would fall out if I put those in. That's my concern. Um, so I just walk along and enjoy creation, but creation is amazing. It's just occasionally, if you do this, if you're on a walk, just stop and look at a flower, or uh, if you can, without damaging the whole plant, take it off and have a look closely at the flower and see the beauty of what God's created. It's just incredible, the creative power of God. As parents, Ian and Melissa will have spent time looking at John and holding him when he was a newborn gazing at him, wondering how on earth this was possible. This wonderful little chap that had arrived in their lives and caused joy and havoc in equal measure. And Shane's doing the same again with a little daughter. Congratulations. Just last week, he became a dad again. And it's wonderful to, to hold a little one in your arms and wonder how this happened. This incredible creativity of God. It's wonderful. God's approach is not only different because he's creative, 
But God's approach is also different because he sees pers- his perspective is so different to ours and we see it in such a limited way. Uh, let's move on. We see this. The disciples answering to Jesus, we've only got five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 were there. And I want us to see this morning that our response does matter. You see, the disciples have scanned the crowd and they've found five loaves and two fish. They've collected resources, and this is the best they've come up with. I noticed this as I was reading this story, that somebody needed to do something different for the miracle to happen. Somebody, one person, had to give everything they had for God to be able to work in the way that Jesus thought that he might do. Somebody had to give everything, even when nobody else was. And it really struck me that it's dangerous to measure what God wants us to do by, measuring what, by looking at what other people are doing. It's really dangerous to follow, to try and sense God speaking to you by measuring that against a crowd of other people. Ina Melissa spoke about their belief in John's life and the promises they, they were kind of reading for John the Baptist. And they read there was something of a resonance about those as they were choosing a name for their own son. And it made a difference to them. They were looking for, what is it that God says about this, this man who became a, a great man of God? And that influenced their choice of a name for their own son. And so they're, they're praying into those promises that were given to John the Baptist and thinking about how those might be reapplied to John, their son. What they didn't do was just pick a name out of what everybody else picks on the lists of most popular ones. Well, we, we, that's the top. We'll go for that one. I'm sure some people do, and I'm sure that's okay to do that if that's what you want to do. It's very dangerous to to try and follow God by following the crowd because actually like John the Baptist, God's calling on your life might be very different from somebody else's, everybody else's. And you can't actually measure what God's doing from the safety of the crowd. Crowds don't take active steps of obedience. Crowds normalize behavior. Obedience, discipleship comes from repeated steps of individuals making a decision to walk with Jesus. It just might so happen that you're with other people who are going in the same direction doing the same thing. And then you might be part of a crowd going in the same direction. But there will come a point at which God's call to you is to take a step in a different direction. God's call to you is to stand still while others march on. God's call to you is run faster than everybody else. And you need to be able to hear what God's call is, even in the middle of a crowd. Why am I saying all that? Because one young chap, we learn from John's gospel that this, this, the five loaves and two fish that Jesus ended up having actually belonged to a little boy who'd given up his lunch. And he had to give everything for this to work. He had to give his lunch up that there might be a miracle. Do you know, I realized as I was reading this again that that little boy didn't actually need Jesus to do a miracle until he gave his lunch away. Up until then, he was all right. He'd got his lunch. And it was only at that moment of exchange when he, he trusted enough to say, okay, you can have mine. He'd got nothing at that point. He then needed God to do something miraculous to get something back again, didn't he? And some of us, I just fear, can be holding on to what God's done for us. And maybe, just maybe, and I'm not, it's not a guilt trip, but I'm just aware of this in my own life. Sometimes I can hold on to what give, God's given me and thank God for it and be quite content 
but maybe there's thousands of others who need what God has given to me to be given back to God and given away so that I have less and I have to trust him again. That's a bit scary, isn't it? But I think this little boy shows us something about how we have to give away for God to be able to to work in a new way. Giving your best is costly. This young man just gave his lunch and he got it back again. But giving your best in biblical terms is very costly. There's plenty of illustrations through the word of God about people who've given everything when God has asked. There's a story in the Old Testament of a guy called Abraham who has a son called Isaac. And Abraham's old. He's been promised that he'll be the father of many nations. And he waits many, 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 many years to become a father. And then he hears God tell him that he should take his own son up a mountain and kill him as an offering. Sounds horrific. And just as he gets up the mountainside and prepares the the fire, his son says, well, where's the offering, Dad? And Abraham says, well, God will provide. He carries on with his preparations. Puts his son out on the altar and God stops him just as he's about to kill him. And you think, oh, that's a horrific story. How could, how could God demand that a father should sacrifice his own son? without? And we, we miss the point that that's exactly what God does. Not that he demands that, but he does it himself. He gives his own son for us. It's a, it's, a, it's a type, it's a model of what Jesus himself will do when God himself gives his own son and goes through the pain of that and the son willingly gives himself that we might live. But it's not only that. It's, it's kind of testing Abraham in a culture where child sacrifice was routine. He's, he's, he's tapping into something of the culture that's prevalent and awful. And if ever you wonder why that, that God is so against the Canaanite culture at the time when Israel's moving into the land, it's precisely because of stuff like this where people are sacrificing their own children to false gods. And it's happening again and again and again and again. And God redefines what worship is. And he says, no, you, you won't kill your son. Here's, here's my provision. And he's establishing a principle that this is not how God's people live by killing off their own kids He's doing something very different. But the call for Abraham was also, will you give everything? Will you be prepared to give all that you have? There was a moment just a few weeks ago after the election when the party leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, Tim Farron, resigned. Anybody notice that on the news? Yeah, okay. Okay. So Tim Farron gave a speech and said, well, my, my Christian values are... You know, I can't uphold them and be the, the leader of a liberal party in Britain. And, and some of the newspapers picked up on it. What most of them didn't do was print the speech in full. And I'm not going to read you Tim Farron's speech. And I, I'm not going to tell you how I voted um, in the election. That's irrelevant. Um, but I was very impressed with the last little bits of what he said uh, on this speech. He finished like this. It's two-page speech, this last couple of paragraphs. This is him as a Christian saying, well... It's been a bit of a struggle. He says this, The cause of British liberalism has never needed more people who will fight for a Britain that is confident, generous, compassionate, and needed more than ever before. 
That is the challenge our party and my successor faces and the opportunity I'm certain they will rise to. I want to say one more thing. I joined our party when I was 16. It's in my blood. I love our history, our people. I thoroughly love my party. Now you may agree or disagree with him at this point. He goes on to say this. Imagine how proud I am to lead this party. And then imagine what would lead me to voluntarily relinquish that honor. In the words of Isaac Watts, it would have to be something so amazing, so divine. It demands my heart, my life, my all. That's not bad. From a politician who's stepping down because he doesn't believe he can lead his party, and at the end of his speech, which was not widely reported, he says, actually, there's a cause I'm living for that's higher than this. I love that. regardless of the politics. Somebody has to give everything for lives to be changed. God works when we give everything. Even when you bring your best, others may not notice, but that's okay. What am I saying here? Well, this, this book of Luke doesn't mention there's a little boy who gives his lunch. It doesn't even mention it. Just as the disciples saying, uh, we've got five loaves and two fish. In fact, the disciples say, we've only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy them. Only. For that little lad, that's his lunch. That's all he had. Only. You know, sometimes you offer the best you've got for other people, and it's not enough. Sometimes you feel like you're offering the best you've got for God, and it doesn't feel like it's enough, and it feels like it's an only. It feels like it's an insignificance, and it doesn't matter. And sometimes people don't even notice the sacrifice you've made. Isn't it frustrating when people don't notice that the idea that someone's running ahead with was actually your idea? Isn't that really frustrating? Isn't it frustrating when you were right and nobody notices? Frustrating when when you've, you've given something away and nobody thanks you or gives you credit. Why? Because it's our pride that's hurt. Actually, I really like the fact that this little boy isn't mentioned in this story. I like the fact that he's given his best. He's given all. In the middle of a problem that's too big for anybody else to fix, he's provided the solution and he's not even mentioned. Why do I like that? Because it's not about him. It's actually not about him. It's about Jesus. The whole point of this story is, yes, to show God's provision, but it's to show how incredible and amazing Jesus is. And our lives, our self-giving, is only to point to Jesus. It doesn't matter as long as people see Jesus. It doesn't matter if people notice you or notice me. It's all about Jesus. Finally, I've got no sub-points from this one, just this. There is more than enough. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. 12 basketfuls. What a waste. How dare they? Is that how you feel when you read that story? What about the recycling? What are we going to do with it? Is it going in the brown bin or do we, do we give it away? You know, food's scarce. Twelve basketfuls. I read that and I think about the abundance of God's provision. He is so good. You know, when you're facing an in seemingly insurmountable problem with inadequate resources, God can do that and more besides. But it may well require you to bring your best. They require you to give all that you have to God and say, God, I'm, I'm all in. I'm, giving, I'm living for you. When you look at the needs of the world around you, 
the needs of those who are hurting and suffering. We look at those who don't know Jesus and we, we look and we say, God, what's it going to take to make a difference in this world? It may just take one, two, ten, a hundred, a thousand people bringing their best. Saying, God, it doesn't look like much. Yeah, we've been talking recently about sharing about our faith with people. Because we believe it's important to live like Jesus did. And he lives as one who's bringing the kingdom of God into people's lives. And you know, there's plenty of situations when I've, I've, I've gone to pray for people, or I've gone to share my faith or share Jesus or in trying to encourage someone. You think, I haven't got the words. I haven't got a sensible thought in my head that will convince them of anything. What I've got is tiny and, and simple. In fact, I see in great need, I see someone hurting, and what I've got is so insignificant. What can I do? Maybe there's somebody you know who's grieving. And you run through all the things you could say. And all of them seem foolish. All of them seem like they're not enough. I would encourage you to take what you've got and say it anyway. Because having somebody say something and it not be enough is better than being ignored and having a wall of silence. Because nobody can think of the perfect thing to say. There isn't a perfect thing to say. There isn't a perfect thing to heal some, to, to help somebody who's broken and hurting. There isn't a perfect way of doing it. But you can help and offer what you've got. There isn't a perfect way of sharing Jesus with people, but share and bring what you've got. And you never know, God may take the little that you give and multiply and expand. Jesus gets the lunch and he does one important thing. He gives thanks. He looks to heaven and gives thanks. And I just want to finish by encouraging us that when we look at our insurmountable problems, when we look at in our ad- inadequate resources, our first step is often to remind God of the problem rather than reminding ourselves of our resources. Jesus looks to heaven and he gives thanks. And then he breaks the bread. And I would encourage you, if you're facing today a situation that seems too great, look to heaven and see how big God is. Secondly, look at what God's given and trust him that where there's a gap, he will meet the need. And trust him that where, actually you see a need in the world around you, because it's not just about us, where we see a need in the world around us, the little we have, when we see how big God is, can be enough. So let's be people who give thanks. I believe thanksgiving opens a door for faith and opens a door for God to move. So if there's a problem, remember that God works in those situations. Bring your best and give thanks. Can we pray? This simple story, familiar story of Jesus feeding 5,000. Let's pray. Lord, there are times in each of our lives when we come up against uh, problems and difficulties that are seemingly too much for us. And there'll be people in this room today, Lord, who, as I've been speaking, will know of situations in their own lives where problems are too great for them and their resources are too small to tackle the problem. So Lord, I thank you that you are well able to take our inadequate resources in the midst of insurmountable problems and do miracles. And so I pray, Lord, for us that we would look up 
and see you. I pray that we might be reminded to give thanks for what you've already given. And I pray that we might give our best to you and trust you with the outcome. Lord, I pray that like that lunch that was given, uh, we would see transformation not only in our lives, but we would see an overspill, an overflow. There might be baskets filled up with the goodness of God as we give the little that we feel we have for your cause and for your service. Father, thank you that each one of us here has stuff that we can say thank you for today. Even if there's other things we need, we thank you that we have something that we can say thank you for. And so I pray that you'd show us how big you are, how good you are, and that you would let faith rise in our hearts so that we can keep giving our all for you and trusting you with the rest. In Jesus' name, amen.